be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here, and I, I think I'm not worried about overhyping this this episode today. Our guest is honestly, it's Stuart Appleby, and it's honestly one of my favorite interviews maybe of all time. I maybe need a little time. Might be on a, on a bit of a high after recording this one with him, but he just has a way of telling stories, and he he just came prepared and ready to talk some golf. Uh, nothing that's going to be clickbaity, nothing salacious, nothing you know, too wild or stuff that you're going to see aggregated tomorrow, but just good golf talk and some amazing perspective on his career, the game, and uh, a lot of ups and downs that he's had. Uh, we're going to get to that in a minute. Uh, if you're a gearhead, you might know he is a longtime Odyssey putter user himself, Mr. Appleby. Uh, and Odyssey has just introduced a new version of their most popular head shape on tour. That's the number seven. Uh, the one you probably see Henrik Stenson using, you see Kevin Kisner using it. They've been in that uh, seven shape forever. Xander had it in play this past weekend at Colonial. What's new about this seven, it features the triple track technology that Odyssey debuted this year. Helps uh, aid your alignment. As you know, if you're not aligned properly, you just can't make any putts. Uh, Neil, this is addressed to you. Callaway wanted to personally call you out saying that you need to get the triple track alignment on your putter as uh, being the resident triple track fan among the no laying up family. Um, I, as you guys know, I am in love with my number seven. The grip is completely worn on it. I refuse to take it out of the bag, but if they, if they had a nice, sexy triple track one in the number seven head, I, I will, I will take a look. I will do some testing. That's why they call it testing. Uh, so you, you can take a look at the new Odyssey Triple Track 7 putter today at odysseygolf.com. That's the new number 7 and the full triple track lineup at odysseygolf.com. Here is Stuart Appleby. The listeners can't see what's behind you, but what? Uh, how do you decide who gets up on your wall? What are the jerseys that are, that are up behind you? Well, actually, they're not my jerseys. This is the clubhouse. My house is too dang noisy. To do a podcast of this high stature, I cannot have it done in my house. So this is a quiet place. And uh, we've got, for anyone who's listening, we've got uh, some basketballers, Nelson, who we got, uh, William, and we've got, well, he's not a basketballer, baseballer, Kenny Griffey Jr., who uh, is a very regular uh, range rat out here at Isleworth. And that's, that's exactly why I, I had a feeling you were at, uh, at Isleworth. Can you give the listeners an idea of what it's like at a club like Isleworth, a place, I mean, I, I, as I understand it, it's essentially designed for pros. Who are the guys that you would see there currently? Uh, what what do members act like when Tiger Woods was there, like when he's around? Do people leave you alone to do your thing in practice? Um, it's, it's very interesting because some of the players, you know, I was a bit of a range rat. I spent most of my career on the range uh, doing all my hitting, not a lot of play. Uh, a guy like Bubba Watson, when Bubba was here, Bubba, you would never saw him on the range. He was always out on the course playing. Tiger was a bit of both. Um, I think, you know, we... <laughs> You know, the club's idea was, you know, to keep, to be respectful of the pros doing their thing. We've probably had, you know, a couple of dozen pros over the years. Uh, some have come, have gone. When we had Tavistock, which was a great event in those early years, it was it was just a fantastic thing against Lake Nona. But it was, I mean, you're talking about five-star golf clubs. You know, when I came from Australia, from a small club that costs about three or $400, $300 a year US to be a member, no monthly choose, nothing. We've got one greenkeeper, you know, to come here with this place 
it was definitely over the top. And uh, yeah, it's been an, an honour to get to watch a lot of the best players and seeing Tiger, well, let's say the days after winning 80-odd tournaments. It was, I got used to saying, congratulations, mate, well done last week. He would be there right uh, on a Monday right after a win? He might take a day off. Um, and my first real experience with him, because you got to remember, I came from Australia. I didn't really know Tiger Woods, the amateur. I didn't know how good he was. And I remember uh, late 90s watching him. He was good friends, obviously, with Mark Amira. And he's on the range. And I'm sort of back a fair way away. And I'm watching the body language. And he's turning to Mark. And he's just hit a four-iron about 30 feet, 40 feet right of the hole on the range. And he's looking at Mark, and the body language was, see, Mark, that's just crap. Huh? That's just, I mean, that's crap. And I'm like, oh, okay. So it's another one. Hits the same shot, maybe 30 feet. See, Mark, I told you, that's just shit. What am I going to do? I'm like, wow. He seems to be pushing it a bit. I mean, that's not bad. I mean, it's, it's on the green half the time. I thought, I just, he's just he's having a bad week. Well, guess who won that week? It was the Disney week. Tiger wins. And I'm like, you know what? This is something special about this guy. Like, he wasn't happy with a 30-foot four-iron. And it was just a, a, run, a run fest from there of holding trophies. And I went to his house not long, well, probably five years after that. And my coach walked in there. and We noticed there was trophies everywhere. And we noticed there was very few um, spots left, you know, for a new trophy. And we walked out and we sort of chuckled to each other and said, gee, that uh, seems like he's not got a lot of wins left or something. I don't understand it. There's only three or four spots left in the recessed park. And he goes, you idiot, he just gives them away. And, well, I, he was right. My coach was right. <laughs> he must have given away another 40 after that. You get to see him practice. You get to see him at Isleworth. You get to see these things. Is that, Did that give you any insight as to how you can be that much better than the rest of the field? I mean, that, that it's something I still just struggle with because the gap between number one and two can, it, it should be tight, right? So how can one guy be that much better than the next best guy? How can one guy be that much better? That is a great question. Um, what, how much talent does it take to be successful? Now, what does that mean on the PGA Tour? Does it mean winning more than five times? Does it mean winning once? Does it mean having a tour card? Not win? I don't know what the answer to that is. To keep your card and be top 125 out of the tens of thousands of good players in America that, are, that are, would die to, for a chance, you know, when I was playing well, it felt pretty easy to do, you know. And then when I when it got more difficult, it was a real sweat fest. And to have, be as good as he is, it is hard to imagine. Um, but I certainly was uh, reading a book a few months ago now, so the name of it's lost me. But really talking about Tiger's really everything right up to his upbringing. You know, what was, what were the things that made him this elite, you know, and obviously in the end, a lot of the things that he learnt as a young boy going into being a man really, you know, ruined his career. Uh, the final portion of his career made it extremely difficult. You know, just got lost. But I can only imagine. I always thought to myself, you know, he can't go anywhere. He can't go yeah. anywhere and do anything. He can't go and buy a hamburger. And I think the one thing that I, if I could have waved my magic wand over anybody who ever spoke to Tiger as someone as a fan or someone who wanted to tell a story. If Tiger only ever got people come up to him and say, hey, Tiger, well done last week. Congratulations. Have a good Christmas. Well done, Tiger, last week. Hey, uh, good luck at your next event. If that was it, I think a lot of this wouldn't have happened. There's just so many people wanting to tell a story, wanting to get a piece of Tiger. Not always in a superficial negative way, but 
this constant, every time someone makes eye contact with Tiger, he would have been thinking, what do they want? Yeah. And he just becomes very insular. It's not just well wishes. I got well wishes all the time because no one really gave a hoot. It's like, hey, good luck. Well done. I saw you play this. I saw you do that. But Tiger, it was a whole different level. It was just, it's elite. It's what Jordan would have had. It's what, what really can drive you crazy at the ultimate end. All you want to do is just compete. And I said to Tiger once, I said to him, mate, you should go and play this tournament. You should go and do this. This is a great tournament. You love that golf course. And he'd say to me, I'm lucky to play two weeks. At two weeks, I'm like toast. I'm mentally, I'm done. And no one had more on the ground, field, on the tee, on the range, anywhere, present and like blinkers on, like at Kentucky Derby. He, he was like no one else. Hmm. Eyes down, get me to the first tee, let me go. Um, and I saw it. Everyone saw it all that time. He could not look up because if he did, someone wanted a piece of him. I always wondered if he heard the gal. Like, I, you know, attending the Memorial Tournament as a kid, every time he walked by, it was just 50 people like, Tiger, Tiger. And I always wondered if he got to a certain point where he, he never, he didn't even hear that anymore because he had made a, it seemed like he made a conscious decision to say like, I can't acknowledge people in this way because if I give one person this gratification, like it's going to happen for, I have to do it for everyone, almost what Phil has decided to do. But I always wondered if he ever, if you ever thought like he hears that anymore or was able to like actually tune it out. Well, I think he was bringing it at, at tuning out all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, you know, I played a lot with him in the earliest mid parts of my career and at Augusta and, you know, the, the, the photography and the flashes going off and the practice rounds would be a cloudy day and just nonstop. And, and he was just, and that's what made it really hard to play with him and, and Phil at the same time. Phil was a different energy in the sense of the crowd. If you weren't really used to it, they, it was such a different feeling. Now, most of that's internal, but at the same time, there is an energy. Like you go to any sporting event, there is an energy that's in the air, whether it's at a major or we're playing with people of that status. But Tiger, I think, got really good at isolating his golf and his personal life, but ultimately those two did not merge well in the end. But how he managed both through that period was, well, I say managed, but uh, did that was mind-blowing. He, he could compartmentalise and he, he was cutthroat. Uh, I mentioned Jordan's name before. He was the same ruthless this is what I'm going to do. And that is the hardest thing as an athlete is to want something but then not get in your way. And that is the biggest stumbling block for any mere mortal. But for Tiger, he had an elite level of I'm going to do this and this is how I'm going to do it. And his recipe, and the thing is too, is like for me, I didn't realize he was doing this since he was 15 years old. Yeah. Just dominating. So by the time he was 25, he had more experience at professional golf than probably 50% of anyone else in the last 50 years. He had, he had dominant. I mean, he, he is the reason why we see the Ricky Fowlers of Jordan Spieth and go on. There's another six now. I mean, you go back to Sergio 20 years ago is the reason why you have these guys playing so good is they just see Tiger and it's osmosis. You just transform into, Hey, I'm 22. I don't give a hoot. I'm going to go and play. And if I do these things, I'm going to win comfortably in the next year or two. Well, that you go back 40 years, you didn't talk like that. You didn't think like that. Tiger was really the catalyst for this gun level of young golfers being in their mid-early 20s to what used to be 
you know, mid-20s minimum to late-20s, you know, Justin Leonard's and someone like that. It's just a different field. I, I was the President's Cup captain for the international team late last year, and Justin Leonard was the uh, US captain. And I walked around with my boys, and and uh, I was just gobsmacked. Going, These kids are in high school. Look what skill level they had. I was breaking. I was probably shooting mid-80s at 15. I started when I was 14, so I was probably mid-80s minimum at 15. I'm like, oh, these guys have cleaned my clock. You know, I just even wonder whether there would be a Stuart Appleby at all if I had turned up now. Yeah. It's just a, a different a different landscape. Well, you, you touched on about like four different things that I was planning to ask you about. So remind me to ask you if I don't about, uh, about how different it would be to come up in golf versus when you came up. But uh, I, and I promise I don't yeah. only want to ask about Tiger, but uh, you you might have a unique you know perspective on this. One being Australian, and you being in living in Orlando in the Isleworth area in the fall of two thousand nine. What was that like to be around? And I don't know how much you saw of Tiger during that time, but that was kind of the weirdly the center of the sports world. Uh, what do you remember about that time? Okay, so we were in Australia then. Uh, we being family, and actually Tiger was at the same time. Right. And it was the Australian Open at Kingston Heath. And I remember I was on the Pro-Am. I was first group off on whatever it was, the 10th tee, at like six something in the morning. You know, it's a little bit daylight, beautiful day. And the crowds, because Tiger's the second group off on my tee, the crowds already, at, at basically like daybreak, there was thousands of people already there. I mean, this... This tournament ended up being like a major. And this is in a little, this is in one well, not a little, three and a half, four million people. But one city in Australia, it was packed. There was helicopters flying overhead. But there was the talk of something going on in his personal life was floating around that week. Now, cut a long story short, I think he ends up winning that week. And you know what hits the fan at the end of that tournament around there. And by the next week, I think, sorry, the next week, we were uh, going to Sydney to play another tournament. He'd shot off and gone home, and that's when it hit the fan. And then we'd heard stories about, you know, Arlworth, you know, security was basically checking every car coming in and out. There was trains of uh, media vans out across the road, you know, 50 yards from the front gate. And it was oh, – I'm sort of glad I wasn't here, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it was very hard to believe. I had no idea, you know, I had no idea this was all going on. And, and obviously the preceding years were – quite ugly for himself and obviously Elon and the kids. So it was, you know, I really, unfortunately, I thought he was the poster child of, you know, I thought he was the man. I mean, yes, he could interview a little bit more like Phil and to be a bit more honest, but he just, he did feel like to me, you know, we've got the right guy at the top. Now we have in a professional sense, it was obviously, you know, and most people wouldn't have a clue what it's like to be resembling a Tiger Woods or something like that. But, after sort of digesting a lot of his life a little bit in the sense through print, it would be hard not to go off the rails when, you know, you sort of had the recipe that he had. But uh, it, it was all worth, unfortunately, got a lot of uh, attention over that next uh, 12 months plus. Yeah, just I promise to wrap up the Tiger part. I, I think if you're, like you touched on, if you're if you're getting this much attention from the time you're age 15 – you're not going to ever really have a chance to fully mature on your own. I mean, it honestly took me at least I would say into my late 20s until I fully, fully matured. And if you get that, you know, that everyone looking at you the way you were talking about from the time you're 15, it's bound to have some kind of effect on you. And I think, uh, you know, we learned a lot about that at a later point. But again, back to what I what we were just discussing and what you mentioned 
And I, I look at, I, I promise I don't mean this in any way as a slight on your career, but I, I just wanted to ask you if you felt like you were coming up and coming of age into like this generation of golf, how different would your career have been and how different do you see the golf landscape currently compared to when you came out on tour? Well, uh, good question. Part of me says, you know what, I'd been fine. Why I think that is because golf has got the widest goalposts for success of any sport, right? For longevity, but also for skill level and body shape and size. And you could have someone like a Dustin Johnson, who's just a physical athlete or Gary Woodland. And there's another a whole handful of those guys. But then you've got someone like Jim Fury, who you go, wow, what a terrible looking swing. What an amazing mind. What a beautiful hand. Uh, Zach Johnson, the same way. Brilliant mind, great hand. Who have both, all by those, have had phenomenal careers that in another sport you'd go, well, could you, could you have a guy in basketball that was not so tall, not so quick? But that's the beautiful thing about golf is it is you and the golf ball or you and your brain, that thing above your shoulder. That's really it in the end. So there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. Um, you know, would have I had, I mean, I had some elite training and I was in a thing called the Victorian Institute, a state-based institute of, uh, of athletes or golfers. And we were sort of the first around the world to really push what we need to do in the body and, and the mind and things like that. Now it's certainly gone to a level now that's phenomenal with track man and gym stuff and science and all this, you know, so maybe I would have become more of, powerful or, or a different type of athlete. So, to, you know, would have I, I think I would have been fine. I, I don't know whether I would have won as much. Who knows? I don't really know. I, I know the golfers, the top 100 golfers uh, who have spent five years or 10 years at top 100, or let's say the top 25 in the world, are better than the top 25 of 50 years ago. But that's just in all the measurables that I think are measurable because we had different equipment. The brain power has never changed. Tiger, the Ray Floyds, and the like. Those guys are, you know, strong, powerful minds. The Nick Faldos, any of the guys that dominated and did well in majors were powerful-minded people. And that has probably got no better, barely marginally better in the last 25 years. But the equipment and the bodies of players and the size of the players has totally changed from, from decades ago. Yeah, I was watching the golf this past weekend and, you know, watching Jordan Spieth kind of trying to regain form that he had maybe as uh, the, the most recent time he had, it was really like 2017. And I'm watching, he's paired with Colin Morikawa. And I'm like, man, when he was at the top of his game in 2017, he didn't have to deal with a guy like Morikawa. He wasn't there yet. And it just kind of feels like the new guys are coming into the game faster than the quote unquote old guys are leaving it. And I don't know if that has to do with technology. Is that, you know, what elongates guys' careers or just seems to give this volume of extremely real good players that I don't know if the game has ever really seen. And I think that's going to lead to guys not necessarily racking up as many individual wins. Does that make sense? I, I reckon you've hit, there's nothing there I disagree with you with. I think that, that I think more young guys are coming in, squeezing older guys out. I mean, you know, I mean, I've had an injury or two, but I, I think that if you looked at, and I spoke to the tour about this, and, you know, I, I'm coming up on 50 in less than, what, I'd say 11 months from now, and, you know, I, but right now I'm just, I'm not ready to play, I haven't played golf in over, over a year on the tour and struggle to even play 18 holes now. So I would say if you went back 30 years, there was a lot of people 
keeping their cards at 40 years of age and more. Mm-hmm. Now that number to going to 125, it's very rare that guys go from the regular tour at 49 step to the Champions Tour who haven't got 20 wins under their belt of Davis Love, Fred Couples, BJ Singh. You know, a guy like Rod Pampling, a Jim Furyk, a Steve Stricker. You know, there's very few out of the, the many hundreds that are rolling over through a cycle. And I, and my, if we also tie into that, the one thing you didn't mention was how are you going to get a Murakara, a Spieth, a Johnson, a Woodland to the Champions Tour yeah. at 50? I, I just cannot see how that engine is going to last that long. Bernard Lang is probably the, the greatest freak show around. He's been playing high-level, world-class golf now for over 35 years, basically. And I just, I'm, I, I'm just, you know, I think you need on the Champions Tour, I think you really need to have at least a David Toms, uh, a Steve Stricker, and obviously if you want to go a notch, you go to Fred Couples and, and, the, and Davis. You want those guys there. You want that sort of competition. Um, I just, you know, I know it's a long way away, but how are you going to get any of these guys? I can't see him playing past 40. Right. Yeah, and the money is so different now too that it's it's you oh. know where's the money mo- where does the motivation come from and it, it seems to me the Champions Tour guys you know it, it's still part of that group you know you're starting to get some guys like yourself that were a part of this Tiger era that have maybe made more money compared to their careers than say a Hale Irwin has or somebody that you know played for a long time on the Champions Tour but yeah how do you one I think you, you you've now got this buffer zone that I think you're talking about this age 45 to 49 that you know you're kind of just in between like, almost like per, golf purgatory and yeah where does where does you where do you get the what, what is the motivation I guess for the Champions Tour and I'm talking to Jim Furyk about that and it's for him I mean he's like what third in career earnings on the tour it'd be super easy for him to you know hang back and and you know hang with his family but for him it was immediately just about the competition it it, it really doesn't seem to be about the money for him in any way but it's just there's this competitive itch for for him for a guy like him and I'm wondering how strong is your where would you assess your competitive itch at the age of 49 um, I, I think the itches of I think the competitive itch is a really strong thing. I think it's someone like there's a lot of players on the Champions Tour that you know they love the friendship, the camaraderie that we really do. You, you, you under, people underestimate how much of a travelling family it is. And you know, if I have an opportunity to get healthy enough to go out there, I'll see guys that I played with Duffy Waldorf a couple of years ago uh, at an opposite field event, and I remember Duffy in my early part of my career. So I I know Duffy, and then there'll be guys that. You know, your Jerry Kellys and so on, who I spent my uh, Corn Ferry uh, years, and then he's ducked out on the Champions Tour, so I'll catch up with Jerry. So I, I, that family thing I get, they're very competitive, but much more relaxed. It's almost like the egos have egos there, but it's quite subdued now versus strutting around and just trying to rip trophies off shelves like you were, you know, in your 20 somethings to 30 somethings. I think a lot of players still need a buck out there. It's still com- competition, but hey, you know, there's some great money to had be had out there. You know, I, I can do this. I can make X. I can, you know, how could you not not go out and, and give that a shot? Touching upon how you, Morikawa, and we're assuming the Jordan Spieth, the Dustin Johnson, Gary Wood, and all these guys are going to have pretty healthy careers in the sense of body that, you know, the only thing that's going to keep them going is do they have enough Jim Furyk in them, enough will to still compete? The money is irrelevant. And that's what ultimately is going to make a champion's tour. So, see, they'll have to bring the age down. But by the time, yeah. you know, 10, whatever, 15 years, they're going to have to bring it down to 45, maybe even less. And that is a con- 
pretentious number to even talk about to anybody on the tour now. The number's just a number, but it would be certainly great to see a good dosing of those players out there. I just love to get healthy enough. Right now, I, I, I don't have, I don't know. I just would love to get out there. I just have not been healthy enough to even resemble playing Allworth Country Club golf, you know? What is your, uh, what is your current health situation? How long have you been dealing with it? Oh, mostly back, really, really all back. Um, I sort of, it was on the fritz probably around 2011. I, and then it really went cockeyed after I blew it out maybe early 15, had surgery and sort of really haven't had many weeks where I felt pretty awesome. You know, I don't mind hitting a bad shot. Like, I don't mind hitting playing bad golf when I can work it out. But when your body pretty much says, screw you, and you're a passenger in your performance, you're like, well, what's the point? You're basically a race car driver with some idiot behind the wheel. You know, trying to find the, the – I feel a little bit like, for me right now, it's like I feel like 100 keys in my hand trying to stick it all in the lock, trying to find something that, that gets me going. I, I, I probably have a – Mate, I don't know if I have a silver bullet left in the gun yet to give it a shot, but I love the sport. Man, I I love – well, I've probably lost a lot of love from it the last handful of years, to be honest, because it's not it, – I don't mind the game when you go through cycles, ups and downs, but when it's just pretty much all down and there's no, there's no up and it's not about winning, it's actually just about feeling like you're involved in your own game and your own progress and there is no progress – Golf sucks. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, <laughs> that's what it feels like. Got to be honest, had a hard time finding a time to uh, take a break in this episode, but we are going to take a brief one to check in with our friends at Herbal Active. That's Herbal Active, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Uh, they have been a great, great partner for us. They are, of course, a, a great CBD provider. We've been using their products for, uh, gosh, I don't even know how long. I think it's been almost almost a year now. Um, I'm a big fan of the drops. I, do the, I take the drops before I go to sleep. It helps me sleep a lot better. They offer a variety of different products. They have balms, they have mints, and they also have a great frequently asked questions uh, section of their website. If you have any questions about CBD, any uncertainties at all, they are answered on their website. That's U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V.com. And listeners of this podcast can use promo code NLU20 for 20% off your orders at herbalactive.com. Just check it out. Check out the website. Learn a little bit about it. You can, of course, get hand sanitizing spray there, all kinds of options that they have there on the website. Uh, and I promise it's, uh, it, it is a very quality, good stuff, and we have had a great time uh, both partnering with them and using their products. So thank you very much to them for our sponsorship. And uh, let's get back to Stuart Appleby. Uh, gosh, back injuries in golf, uh, I don't know if there is a cure, right? I mean, Tiger, we all thought Tiger was done because of, you know, of all the issues he'd had and the spinal fusion no one really expected. Do you see a path to resolve? Is, is more surgery an option or is this just something that you feel like you're almost sort of resigned to? Um, I, I, look, I was talking to Robert Dameron a couple of years ago. We were having a chat. You know, hey, what do you think the odds are Tiger coming back and, and winning? And I said, look, I think at the very best it'd be 50-50 just to win a tour event. Major, not likely. Well, we know what happened. Hmm. Um, so I was wrong there. I think most people were really wrong. I certainly just, you know, speaking to the, enough people in the back business, you know, um, I think Tiger's really trying to uh, whip the horse as hard as he can to get the last few furlongs out of it before, he, before it collapses. And I think, I think, I'd love to think I'm wrong, but I would say that any time now, he could pull this, pull it up and just go, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm done. I mean, it's a lot of stress to put on. Of course, he doesn't hit 125 miles an hour like he used to, but it is a lot of stress to put on the body. And I, and I think 
he's a very driven man and he's going to get shit done. I don't care what the cost is long term. I want majors. I want the competition. And uh, I think Greg Norman was a great example of he found somewhere to put his energy outside of golf. He really had that thirst for, I guess, that adrenaline in the boardroom. You know, and I think that is the secret for someone like Tiger is what do I do when I'm not playing golf? What, what, am I, what can I be good at? You can't just sit down and drink cocktail. But I, I think he's just going to whip that horse until he – and at any moment I, would, I could expect a release that Tiger's done. Could, mm-hmm. could be six months, six weeks. Could be – I don't think you'd see more than a couple of years out of him. If he's not out there competing at a high level, feeling the juices flow, knowing he has predominantly control of the golf ball, you're not going to see him. Well, backtracking a lot here, um, usually this is a place we start, but we, we got kind of going down some wormholes. But what was golf like for you growing up? Where in Australia did you grow up and what's what's the golf like? I, th- I feel like a lot of people assume when they hear somebody's from Australia, they grew up just playing on the sand belt the whole time. But uh, I understand your golf background's a little bit different than that. Uh, if you hang out with me, I will take you down wormholes. I can guarantee you. <laughs> I love it. No, I, uh, I, I I can promise you right now I'm going to keep you for longer than we than we than uh, that I uh, told you I would because this yeah. is awesome. Uh, that's fine. That's fine. Um, well, so my mum and dad started playing golf. Um, geez, I guess that was, they were probably around 40, 45. They had got, actually drove hours to get a lesson because we had no one around. And dad was a lefty, so he was sort of useless for me. Mum was a, a right-hander. And really mum would come back and I'd say, mum, what did you learn today? She goes, well, they taught us about, you know, you got to try and make the club go this way. Then as you go up, it goes this way. And, and I was 14, as I said before. So mum was about the same height as me. And so, you know, literally I grabbed mum's clubs and we'd go out and play. You know, I had no, I had played cricket at that time. I played Aussie rules football and a little bit of tennis. So I just got out there and I love ball sports. As You know, if you just love a ball flying through the air, that was just perfect seeing golf ball go that far. And I just got, I think I shot 120 something in my first round of golf. And it's only a short golf course, 72, probably you know, six and a half thousand yards, 60, maybe late sixes. And and then pretty much within tw- oh, less than 12 months, I was addicted. Like, I, I mean, I could not go a day without chipping in the backyard. I even used to get our, our mower because we lived in, uh, we had a couple of, I think a couple, 250 acres of land. And so I'd go out in the nearest little paddock and mow a spot, you know, a little six by 10 foot spot in this sort of, well, past Fallon, but not like the stuff you see on the golf courses. And, and I'd hit into the backyard. Well, Dad made the backyard bigger. Mum said, don't break a window. So I had no motivation, no window breaking. And I just pitch back and forward and do that for for years. And and I just got addicted. By, so by the time I was uh, about 16, so a couple of years later, I was getting better. I was still nowhere near the elite level of even my state golf. And ultimately got good enough where I got picked in that Victorian Institute of Sport, got to represent my state in our interstate competitions. Uh, never got to represent Australia and really, I guess, had dreams of wondering how good I could be. Started playing the odd pro tournament, had, you know, managers looking at me and got to play a few pro tournaments and, you know, would have made a check, so to speak. You know, I would have made $5,000, $2,000, you know. Could that be enough to run my expenses? Could I, should I turn pro? I certainly had no illusions that I was going to be a world beater. I'm like, ah, I'm not, not once did I ever think. I just thought, you know what? Just go about my business, much like my mum and dad did, being dairy farmers, just get it done. And lo and behold, I turned pro and chip away in Australia. And a handful of years later, a few mini tours around, um, I thought, you know what? I want to go to the US. That's where I wanted to be. A lot of Aussies went to Europe. I had no family connections in Europe. And 
that was a pretty scary time, but you know, that brought me to Q School in 1994. I think I shot the worst score of the first round, uh, Q School, and eventually got what was the consolation prize, the Nike Tour, the Corn Ferry card, and that was the best thing that ever happened to me and, and went out there with uh, the likes of Chris Smith and Jerry Kelly. Uh, Alan Doyle was playing there. Alan Doyle, I mean, he went out the Champions Tour out there, but that was a real wake-up to how damn good American players were. But, uh, I mean, that feels like a million years ago. Well, there, there has to be, you know, a time when you, you, you said you'd never, never believed you were a world beater, but there had to be a time when you realized, hey, I actually am that good at it, and I, I want to get to kind of when that is. But was your success uh, immediate on the Nike Tour? And I, I've, I've read a story, I think, in a Golf Digest interview about uh, some particular uh, equipment limitations that you may have had right when you, immediately when you started your pro career. Do you remember that story? Um, limitations, well... I did win my first year out, my first week out, sorry. It was in Monterey, Mexico. That was a bit, I was running a bit short on balls that week. Yeah. And I really looked, all, all I had, like I can't remember, I only had like a, not, maybe not even a dozen balls for the week. And, and like I got practice rounds. I mean, I can't, you know, it's in Mexico, you're not going to get anything shipped in quickly. So I'm like super budgeting. And, and I remember knifing or half knifing a ball out of the bunker after the first round. And I went one ball that whole round. And that's when balls, when you half knife them, they were cut right. back then. <laughs> Now you can't even cut a ball now. And and I, and I ended up beating um, uh, Rafael Alacon, who's a Mexican guy, in a seven-hole playoff. And seven I remember playoff. thinking, I remember made about 40 grand, and I mean 40 grand. I don't even know what the exchange rate was back then. But uh, I was like, holy cow. But i got to I tell you, it was a real str- – I mean, that was a great way to start. But it was a real struggle because when I got to the mainland, when I got to the U.S., I'd never seen rough before, proper American rough, around, country club rough, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I grew up in basically no rough. So I'm watching – the thing I really remember was I'd go out and shoot three or four under. I'd be like, man, I played good today. Eight under, nine unders leading. i go, what? <laughs> There's no way you can shoot eight or nine under around here. Because I used to – I was – you mentioned the sand belt. I'd go and play my shots into the fat part of the green, turn my seven iron in to kick back to the flag, but there was no kick. The greens are soft and pretty slow. And I'm watching all these Americans just go, bam, bam, just stuffing it right in there. And I'm like, who are these guys? It's like a shootout. And I later found out after trying to watch for six months how to get out of the rough because I had no idea. I really worked out, man, you've got to be aggressive. You've got to, you know, this is nothing like Australian golf, uh, sandbelt golf. And I got a win, I think, uh, late that year at Sonoma County Open. And I remember Jerry Kelly and John McGuinness and their partners, and, and my partner, my wife, Renee, you know, we had a great tour through this. And actually, it was around the Johnny Cochran time, the OJ trial. Actually, we saw him the next morning because he went missing. Uh, really? And we found him at uh, we found him at Opus, I think it was, the Opus thingo. You know, that was some of the coolest years of my life because, or that portion, because I got to meet so many people. I got to see how professional tours are run long-term versus our small Australian tour. But, you know, America's just been... I just can't, honestly, I still look and can't believe I was ever a tour player that played on tour and won on tour. I, I look back and go, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> Truly, sometimes I can't put my finger on it. Well, you touched on this, and I was hoping we, we could talk some about this because um, I, re- I remember reading some stuff where you talked about the competition level in Australia just wasn't there compared to America. And I, I've seen this in the last few years. I've been fortunate enough to just play pretty frequently with you know many tour pros and stuff like that. There's been no 
better medication for my game than to actually see good golf, like to see that level. And you just mentioned that there where, you know, in your mind, four under is a great day, but you didn't see the path to eight or nine under until you saw it up close and personal. So is it safe to say, you know, during that time period on the Nike tour that you are learning what it takes to actually play at the most elite level from the other players? Yeah. I mean, you look at like Jerry Kelly plays all this sort of swagger and, you know, Jerry's like, watch me do this. And Jerry's got that sort of thing about him. You have someone like Chris Smith, which going back to when I played on the, the Nike slash Corn Ferry, you know, Chris Smith was just a ball striking Jesse and just so humble, calm, just relaxed sort of guy. And it was a lot more cockiness in America. There was just a lot more cockiness. And it was like, I was, I was not that person. I wasn't a rah-rah fist pumper. I was just a tip your hat, a quiet sort of guy that golf suited my personality uh, a lot. You know, I think noticing the Jerry Callis and those guys do those sort of, you know, the way they played, I'm like, okay, I think I need a bit more of, a bit more of that. I can still be me, but I, I, this is sort of, if you want to get in the ring, you better start, you better start, you know, not just shadow boxing, you better start getting going. And, um, I just, you know, I, again, like I say, I don't quite know how it all worked out for me because I never really saw, saw myself as uh, gifted in, in a sense, like I would look at another player and go, geez, I'd love to have that action in the downswing or that. Man, don't, don't you love how he, whatever. Uh, I think probably my best asset was, um, is ju- was just being really blinkers on. Like I, I really got absorbed into what I was doing. And I think that's the one thing as you get older, you're not as good at. And I think the guys that are still good older are the guys I mentioned before, the Furyx, uh, Zach Johnson and Jerry Kelly. Those guys are very good at being older players with small scar tissue, but are able to single a couple of minutes out to do their golf shot and play like young guys, even though they ache in pain, that beautiful mind, that youthful mind that, that I had, was ultimately the greatest asset I have. It wasn't skills, physical skills. That's the, that is it. As you get older, it is the asset. I think, I, I haven't spoke to a lot of guys, but I think that's the, the greatest tool in the bag once you get past 35 onwards. Mm-hmm. So you go from winning on the Nike Tour, you transition onto the PGA Tour. Your first run at the Tour was not successful. And if I'm gathering right, you went back to the Nike Tour. What was kind of this time period in your, in your golf life like? Uh, well, I mentioned earlier that I that I got the consolation prize. You know, I I gone from I think I shot like I said last in the qualifying school. I end up playing shooting a bunch of sixty nines to get almost to getting my card. And you know, I'm like, ah, oh, dang it, I missed. Okay, well, we'll go play this this corn ferry tour. And so I had some success there. I got the last, and this is this is how dumb I am. You ready? Jerry Kelly comes up to me at the end of the the last tournament of the first year I'm playing on the corn ferry tour, and he comes up all wound up. Jerry he goes, hey, Stu. Mate, I think you've got the fifth card. I think you've got enough money. I think you've got the fifth card, mate. Well, you're going to the tour. Like, they only had five cards back then. And I'm like, what, Jerry? Really? You think? Come on, come on. Come on. We've got to go do the presentation. I'm like, oh, where are we going? Just follow me. You know, we're over and we get our, you know, I get my last card. And I'm like, how oblivious am I to this? You know, I'm just doing my thing and, you know, just hopeless. And Jerry Kelly's like dragging me along to get, you know, basically collect my ID, my tour ID. And out we go to the, to the tour and, and I go out that year and holy cow was it a was it a step up I'm, I'm playing I had a great year like I made something like 18 cuts made most of my cuts 
you know, as a percentage, I made quite a lot. I think I missed a handful, but but I just never had any good events. And it was definitely a real sort of wake up. I mean, in a way, I'm sort of glad I never got out on the tour straight away. It just sort of got cleaned up. And I made about oh, 120, 30, 20 odd grand. How's that? 120 odd grand and I almost got my card that year. Uh, I think I had to birdie the last hole at Disney in uh, that year to keep my card. And I bogeyed it. And, you know, I go back to Q school. Q school gets delayed the final day. We don't have to play. I've got, an, I've got my card. And uh, I go back to the tour in 1997 and, and have a win, my first tour win in uh, Honda Classic early in 97. That was that was the sort of start of the holy cow, I'm here. I won on the biggest stage. Yeah, you won a million dollars in 97, which it was a lot harder to win a million dollars back then than it, uh, than, than it currently is. All right, so you win, you had nine PGA Tour wins. You win 97 Honda Classic, 98 Kemper, 99 Shell Houston Open. Uh, but I, I want to go to the 2002 Open Championship. Take us to, to first question I have, and we're going to get to the playoff here in a second that you found yourself in. But take us to that Saturday. How did what happened that Saturday, and how did it affect your round? I don't know exactly when you teed off, but uh, did you get hit by the weather? Or, or take us to what that day was like. Sort of take you to the, the whole week. Well, most of that week up till then, I played. I was hitting the ball fantastic. I could not make a putt. Everything was just looked in, never went in. Obviously, when it's doing that, I'm not dropping shots. I was just playing well, doing the right things. Uh, I think I was sort of, you know, not was it up there by no means, but I remember finishing. I played early Saturday, so I obviously wasn't in the tournament so much. And I came in at lunchtime. We went to the you know, big, massive marquee out in the middle of sort of off to the side of the course. Had this beautiful feast. And I thought, you know, as I like I mentioned earlier, I love practicing, so I'd go to the range. I remember walking outside the tent, so it must have been around lunchtime, early afternoon, and I looked over the tent and I went, holy shit, hell's coming. And I went, well, there goes my practice, nothing happening. So I remember just, I'm out of there, I'm going to go back to the, the house we rented. And I just remember, it just was one of the worst days of golf you could ever imagine. I remember, I think it was uh, Shigeki Mariama maybe, was hiding behind one of the the Rolex sign boards or whatever behind it. He's just sitting there crying like a schoolboy. Just like, you know, with an umbrella tiger shot, what, 80, maybe more than 80? It was amazing. So you can imagine where my score went, where I was in the field. I, I can't tell you where I was, but how much I leapt up. Uh, and I think Ernie might have shot oh, just over par, which has got to be one of the greatest rounds of golf that didn't win him a major, but ultimately it did. So that really let me up this, let me up a long way up. And that, you know, I had a, and my coach said to me, Saturday night, said, you know, we'll see how you go tomorrow. Look, maybe they'll drop tomorrow because nothing had dropped all week. And and uh, I think I played with Paddy Harrington on Sunday. And they did. I, pl- I played really, really well. And uh, remember sitting in the locker room, one of those old, 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 old locker rooms. And uh, I'm packing up. I'm getting out of here. And someone says to me, hey, hey, Apples, you might uh, you might be in a playoff here, mate. Ernie's, uh, you know, Ernie's only, you know, whatever, it's tied or he's, you know, one is one in front of you. You know, I'm like, ah, ah, don't worry about it. Nah, no worry. Ernie will be fine. And lo and behold, a uh, four-man playoff ensued. Well, how in the world did they come to the conclusion with this four-man playoff? It's you, Steve Elkington, Thomas LeVay, and Ernie Els to send you guys off in two groups of two. Um, I don't think about it at all, but when guys like you bring it up, it really pisses me off. Um. <laughs> And I mean that just in a mild sense. I don't, you know, I don't get angry, but I'm like, I look back and go, how the F did they come up with that? Now, I actually know the answer, but it's a shit answer. <laughs> the shit answer is 
We've been playing in twos all weekend, so we'll continue playing in twos. Um, so then all of a sudden, this is how they're trying to tell us this is how it is. And, and I'm like, well, how the heck are we going to do this? And they explain it, explain it to us. We're going we're gonna to have you two go, I go here, and you two. And, and I'm going, hell, this is a combative score. How? I mean, it's, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm thinking, why can't Ernie... Why can't uh, Steve Elkington, a more senior player to me, go, screw it, you stuffy old bastard from the RNA. You don't know what you're doing. We are going to play in a four. This is my livelihood. This is basically our tournament right now, four guys tournament. And no one wanted to drive their adrenaline through the roof. And it was, we just unfortunately accepted it. And I look back and look, I'm not bitching that I, that I should have won the British because I believe the right guy won, Ernie won. I mean, that guy did it. But it was the weirdest feeling it was I it's almost like to me a dream like I'm floating above the golf course watching this happen but if at the same time though to be honest I was very grateful that I'd got into the playoff you know because I sort of really wasn't in the tournament I was like holy cow I've got a chance to win the British Open here a 25% chance here this this is real I think as the years rolled by I've sort of looked and went holy cow Stuart you didn't get many chances to win a major very very few in the in, in context of my career, it was my dream tournament to win. And I I sort of, I don't know, part of me is like, man, one shot, Stu, one shot. It's all you needed, one shot, and it wasn't even a playoff. And I think that's the, the, that's the torture this game can do. When you, you know, you're trying to break out and, and win a major because that was a dream tournament for us as Aussies watching that at three and four in the morning before going to school on a Monday or watching majors in the, in the US and so on. You know, look, I would have been very fortunate to have won that. I would have come out of nowhere. But uh, what a strange wrap-up to a tournament. Well, I, I, was, I was hoping the answer wasn't going to be that, you know, they have some weird rules there about, you know, not being able to play four balls uh, at Muirfield or only on certain days you can. And I was hoping when you, yeah. went, when you went to the British accent, I was like, oh, no, they're going to say, you know, we don't, we don't do that on weekends at Muirfield. And I was like, oh, my goodness, if you're uh, going to decide that championship on that. I, yeah, I'm not saying it decided the championship, but I can't imagine – any any sense in that? Because in '99 there was a three-man playoff. They didn't. The take wasn't. Yeah, we've been playing in twos all weekend, so we can't send you off in threes. But uh, I, I, that's a little different scenario. But I always found that so bizarre, and I can't. I don't remember what that vibe was like. But I had to be just be an odd, odd feeling. Oh. It, it would, it's funny because you've sort of reminded me of a, another thing. Like if I ever see this happen again, you'll, I'll be home. You might even hear me yell through the TV, <laughs> like, "No, you're not doing this, you bunch of." You know what? Because almost the same thing happened in me yelling through the TV when Dustin Johnson at the PGA at Whistling Straits when he hit that ball in the, can you call it a bunker? Hmm. Because only, I think the last appearance we were before that, I'd gone and played there in a Commissioner's Cup, I think it was called, where they invite a bunch of players. We go play with all the top CEOs of the tour. And we, we three months before the PGA, or the first version, I think it was four maybe or something like that, we go, um, we go out and play. And the rule was uh, the bunkers were going to be waste bunkers. That, that's what they were, were told. Well, me being an idiot, I didn't read the rules for the week of the, P- of the PGA. So I go out all week and I haven't hit it in a fairway bunker. And I think on a Saturday, I hit it in the fairway bunker on this one hole. And it was over on where the spectators walked. So it was you know, broken straw grass, footprints everywhere. And there was a, a stake a, a rope going right through the bunker. So I go over there, I start grabbing dead grass and a couple of practice swings, what have you. I come in, the rules guy says to me, 
Stuart, let's um, have a chat about the such and such uh, on the such and such hole. I go, what are you talking about? Do you remember how many times you had a practice thing? I go, oh, shit. Um, why are we talking about this? He goes, Stuart, that was a bunker. And I go, I said a few words. My caddy nearly jumped over the scorecard table. I had to pull him away. And I go, what are you trying to tell me? He goes, Stuart, that's a hazard. You were having a practice swing, grounding your club, and pulling away debris in the bunker. And I'm like, mate, there's 7,000 footprints in the bunker. I'm like, I'm supposed to play. Well, they're going to hit me with a four-shot penalty, I think it was. So I ended up getting him down to, I don't know, two or three or something like this. So that was a big deal. I ended up, you know, that cost me a, a long way into the tournament down the leaderboard. But why I say this was I think I was the only guy who got pinged that week is when I saw Dustin Johnson in that thing. I'm just going, don't touch, don't you dare. And when I saw it really, when it unfolded and they were talking about and the rules guy, I just felt sick for the guy. I felt sick going, this guy's just done it on national television. Nobody knew about mine. And I, I just felt awful seeing him basically cost him major. Yeah. Wow. I never knew. I never heard that story. I'm sure if that was on television, well, I don't know if Dustin would have been watching that or, or that would have gotten to him. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely never heard that story. One thing I want to ask no, you about, yeah. of course, is uh, what's now the Century Tournament of Champions. I believe it was the Mercedes back then. You won that event three years in a row. And my favorite part about that is you didn't have any wins in between uh, on the tour between that. So that was your ticket into the event each, <laughs> each of the following years. What was it about that tournament and that course that set up very well for you? Oh, boy, you're racking my brain now. So let me think. Okay, so four, five, and six. So 03, I think I won Vegas. So you that did. was late yep. in the year. October, yeah, okay, October so 23. Late in the year, yeah. right? Okay, so they went to Australia not long after that. So you imagine most Americans are sort of winding things down, you know, after the Tour Championship. Things are sort of, yeah, I think early November was the Tour Championship, maybe. So pretty much Americans have shut down. You know, they're doing their thing. Um, and Australia was still going. So we're going back to summer, we're going back to golf. I was pretty much still engine up the temperature. Uh, I've been working on a couple of good things and, and I go into, um, and, I, and I played fantastic. Actually, I started with a bogey on the first hole and already had a pissy attitude. I'm like, bit of snap hook into the big long like cane grass, took a drop, like, oh, this is great, great start to the tournament. I think I make a 15 footer. And uh, lo and behold, off I go and, and uh, I don't, remember who I beat or how, what I won by or whatever, but I'm like, okay, oh, fantastic, I won. I mean, how good's that? And that would have been, oh, what was that, oh, four. So again, like I said, you can say I did nothing that year. I don't even know where I finished. But the cool thing that really that I remember was the next year, I was, we're basically preset, we're set to have a C-section, my wife to have her first kid. And that was going to happen like Wednesday after Kapalua. So she's super pregnant and, She's back in Australia, and I'm just like so chuffed. I'm about to be my a dad, first time dad, and I just I was playing well. I just had a beautiful attitude. Like honestly, I look back and go, man, that was the greatest asset to have is that that beautiful mind, that calm mind, playing well, but you don't give a shit. You know, I was just you're dangerous when you're like that. Mm-hmm. And I and I was like, oh, life's awesome. You know, life's amazing. I literally flew out that Sunday night after the winning, landed uh, Tuesday had the baby 24 hours later after landing. And so come back to the tournament a year later, I've got my one-year-old baby with yep. me. And I'm like, how good is this? You know, a year ago I'd won two years in a row now. I come back, I've got my little one-year-old. Oh, life's great. My wife's already about to drop another kid in a couple of months' time in March. 
And I remember thinking, you know what? I know, I love this place. I know this place. And I just like, there was something about it. And look, I, I had form. I had good vibes. And I, what I did really well there was, apart from having a great mindset and feeling very comfortable, was I just seemed to pull the right club in a pretty tough golf course from, from the hills and the lies and the wind and the angles. But I read the eyeballs out of the greens. I had a real thing going. I knew every break. And people used to say, oh, you know, you won Kapalua again. Why don't you do that? <laughs> somewhere else and I go no shit Sherlock I mean that's the secret how do you take something there and move it 4,000 miles east um, you know that was uh, it was a great stretch and I had a lot of great fond memories there yeah you know you touched on some of the the amazing times of your life there and uh, it's you know a topic that I can't imagine that is is pleasant to talk about but you had an unspeakable tragedy in 1998 that was you know tied it happened at a you know the open championship when your wife tragically passed away suddenly I'm sure you've been asked about this a ton, but I, I just want to know how that really affected your golf career. How did you come back from that and how that directly relates to your golf career? I'm wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, my brother-in-law um, passed away a bit over a month ago now. And uh, um, one of the championship guys you could ever meet to marry my sister. And he was taken, about, he was a bit, little bit younger than me, not much. You know, it's rocked her world and she's got two boys and it certainly made me look back and think about 98 for me. And I look back, there's a lot of it I don't remember. It's, I honestly think the brain has a way to decide what goes in the trash bin. I remember the day us going, we we're going to go on a, a tunnel trip across the Paris. And what felt like, you know, literally having breakfast, you know, videotaping things we've been doing and, and stuff, having breakfast to me being rushed off in an ambulance in London to be told, you know, my wife had passed away in what felt, well, literally was only hours from breakfast till being told that. And I had some friends in, uh, close friends, uh, friends of ours, Renee and myself, who were in London, who, who I got in contact with. And to be told that, um, I had, uh, I, obviously, my management knew, so they were on top of a lot of stuff. My my coach and my dad, you know, they were that they were heading to London, you know, and a lot of all of that was a it was a bit of a blur. I remember pretty much straight away thinking, "I'm done. Golf's done. F this. This is done. I'm done. I've gone from absorbed into it. Want to win? Want to play golf? Want to compete? Want to measure myself to?" Effort, I'm done. This is bullshit. This is not worth shit. And I went back to Australia, obviously. You know, I was living up with my in-laws uh, there. And, you know, I was like, I don't, you know, I just, you know, I was gutted. I, I, I don't know what to do. And I don't know where in the story in that portion of the days and weeks immediately following Renee's passing, that I thought, you know what, I gotta, I gotta go back to golf. I gotta go back to golf. I gotta, I gotta do something that I know. And I don't remember doing any practice. I remember going to the PGA. I think it was in Sahali out where. Mm -hmm. um, felt like only a handful of weeks later. I'm not quite sure on that. Um, I think it was three weeks I later. Doing a, was it three weeks? I remember doing a media conference that week. I don't remember. I sort of remember little bits of it. I don't remember much golf. I, I can only imagine how strange it would have been for everybody else, the other players and so on, there to see this guy on the range 
you know, I'm at, I was in, I was in whatever fairyland, I don't know. And, you know, I mean, losing my wife was, uh, I mean, I was crying myself to sleep every night for months and months and months. And, and I, the, the, the one thing was, um, you know, if I, if anyone's lost someone dear to them, whatever age it might be, you know, I would be like, oh, what if I could have been with her for 30, 40, 50 years of marriage? You know, is it harder to lose somebody then or is it harder to lose somebody now? I'm, you know, trying to, you're trying to measure things. And I remember thinking, you know what? You've lost a great friend, your wife, your caddy, someone you laughed with and had a, who was a golfer, who was a funny, funny person. And um, I was like, you know what? There's people out there doing it worse than you people out there that have lost whole families, however it might have been, quickly. And part of me made me feel like, you know what, this is awful, but shit, it's not as bad as it can get. And I don't know when I started to feel better. I certainly felt better when I met Ashley, uh, met my wife, in uh, sort of late-ish summer uh, 2000. I was like, all of a sudden I felt different. And... Um, she was a champion, is a champion, but when I say was, was through that period of me not knowing to take a shit or, you know, get off the pot. I, I really didn't know what to do. And it was tough. I, I honestly, I, I, don't, I can hardly give people advice, but just know that when people talk about, this, you know, oh, there's someone special out here, that's bullshit. There's bullshit. There are hundreds of people in the world special for you. And there's not one person. Don't ever let anyone give you that bullshit because it really is just a connection and there's so many people you can connect with that you can fall in love with and, and whatever story you want to tell. And I definitely gave myself a, a second chance and being a parent now, I look and go, man, that must've been hard for an age parents to have lost a child in their, in their 20, mid twenties, late twenties. I, I don't know. I said to Ashley, I said, I don't know if I could go through losing a kid. I mean, I, I don't think I'd have the strength. I don't even know how I did it the first time, but I think this would be 10 times worth. Yeah. Well, you answered every question I could, could have possibly had about that, but, uh, I do want to, you told a great story again in this golf digest article that I keep, uh, keep, uh, citing about your first date with, uh, with your wife, Ashley. I'm wondering if you could, uh, re relay that story. <laughs> well, she would do a better job than me, but <laughs> I remember, I mean, we were, so I met a, actually it was a, a guy that only passed away recently. Guido, Guido was a guy, if anyone's listening to the podcast, and knows Guido, who's probably around my age. Guido used to have these old antique golf clubs at Firestone Country Club for the for what was the Bridgestone and old NEC Bridgestones changed so many sponsors. And Guido basically said to me, "You got to you should meet this girl." And I'm like, I had the odd person like that, and I was very like I mentioned, gun shy. I don't know about other, you know, I didn't play the field at all. You know, I was never that in a, in, in America. I always had a partner, but and then she got the same treatment. Hey, you should meet this Aussie guy. You know, blah blah blah, and. So I meet her and, you know, she walks away and I'm like, holy crap. She really like got my attention. She's gorgeous and massive smile. We just exchanged phone numbers and started chatting and we'd chat two, three, four hours a night, you know, on a phone, like a hotel phone. Can you believe that? Anyone does that nowadays? Hmm. And, you know, so we have this dinner later in the week and I'm a pretty chilled out person, but I think I was a little bit nervous, but we are in this, went to this uh, restaurant. I honestly, I think I must've gone to the toilet like, seven times in the night I had like a bladder the size of a sleeve of golf balls and uh, <laughs> and it was it was great and I um, 
and I think she, you know, I think there was something going on there. And uh, I flew out of town and sort of called her up later, and we hooked up. And a handful of a uh, handful of weeks later, it was actually at Vegas, and that's sort of when we got a bit more serious. And uh, holy cow, we've had four kids since then, and I guess I don't know, closing in on I don't know, even know, maybe twenty years of marriage. So, you know, a great thing came from a shitty thing, and. I think that's how golf is a bit like that too. You know, so much shitty golf that most people don't see, but somewhere in the somewhere in there, there's there's a diamond in the rough for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, one other topic that we uh, couldn't uh, we couldn't let slide by is I, you were shooting 59 before shooting 59 was was cool. I mean, you were the fifth player to do it. <laughs> I know there's been a lot since then, but final round 59 to win by one. Is it only you and Duvall that did that? Is that right? Uh, I think so but i'm not a stat i'm not a big guy on stats and all that I'm, I'm not a you know i never really paid attention to what stat specs i had in my golf equipment I, I, i'm sort of like a yeah that feels good give me that and regrip it when it wears out you know but i again i mentioned it before about kapalua um i remember you know that beautiful mind that that balance i had um you know and i had it that week well i had it that sunday I must have had it that week, but I had it that Sunday. I had my 11th week straight. I was just beat. I was done. Green, um, actually, let me rewind. I got asked to do the media day for the Greenbright Classic, only because the player that was supposed to turn up, because no, normally winners turn up to do it, there was no winner. And I got called like the day or two days before the thing, hey, could you come? They're going to send you a jet. They'll take you to Greenbright. They'll stay there, blah, blah, blah. Eh, eh, why not? I'll do it. So I go up there, I meet with Mr. Justice and the team, and I'm like, holy cow, this is pretty cool. Do the media, can't wait to have the tournament, blah, 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 and go there on a Sunday and, and uh, tired, beat up, just want just to get out of there. It's my 11th week straight. I'm a blithering idiot, although I'm playing well. My energy levels were low, my expectations were low, and I think that's sort of, that's, that's the, the sweet bit when you don't, the expectations are quite, subdued but your skill level is quite high and your focus is still there and that's how it and maybe having Jeff Overton being the leader and me sort of getting up against him was a, a distractor I had so many balls in the juggling pile that I had no time to think about or worry about a 59 potentially although it, a 58 entered my mind at the turn I thought you know if I come home with if I come home like the front nine which felt easy, I'll, I'll shoot a 58. Yep, that'll get it done. I'll do, let's shoot for that. That was easy. Let's do another one. And lo and behold, in the last three holes, I needed three birdies and, and you know, panned out, and that was enough to escape with a victory, yeah. Well, what's funny is, is you look at your your wins, and a lot of them are taking it deep. You know, 31 under at Las Vegas, and that's five rounds, but 22 under, 21 under. But what stuck out to me the most is, is eight of your nine wins were either playoff or by one stroke. Like, would, did, did oh, you, really? yeah, did you consider, I guess, it, what doesn't list on your Wikipedia page is like how many other close calls you have, but was, would you consider your success like a very successful player in closing tournaments? You know, I can't measure that. I yeah. honestly, I don't even have an opinion and I have an opinion on most things. I, oh man, I, I feel like I probably should have, should have, is that word should have, I should have all over myself. I should have closed out probably two, three, four more events. You know, let them get away, I mean, easily. But, I mean, Tiger would tell you he let 10 or 20 go away. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe more. I would not say I'm a closer. 
No, I really actually I don't know. I honestly don't know. I can't even answer that. I don't. You know, Gary Play will tell you I was three shots behind with four holes to go, and I did this and I did that. Oh, I can't tell you how I finished. I know I had a great tussle with Payne Stewart at Honda, my first win. We played thirty, nearly thirty something holes on Sunday, and I was never a big leaderboard watcher. I always found the leaderboard. I was never probably. I'll look at it this way: I was never probably good enough to handle the pressure of deciding what looking at the leaderboard would mean to me. I always felt like I was better to shut up and get internal and just do my thing and know that if I control my mind, I can potentially control the golf ball. And once I control the golf ball, I control the scorecard. That's how I get hold of the trophy. I was never a Jack Nicholas who could stare up and, or Tiger or many others. So I, I, like I mentioned, I'd say I put the blinkers on is what I was good at. And whether it equaled closing tournaments, that's up for you sporty guys. <laughs> Oh, I think that answers the question right there. I think that that's a successful successful formula that worked for you. You mentioned Payne Stewart there. You guys were you were close personal friends. When did that relationship start and kind of what was the nature of your guys' relationship? You know, I you know, I hate to play I hate to play sentimental, but um man, he would have been an awesome uh, neighbor to have. The amount of times that I could have turned on him and said, "Dude, what do you think? What's your advice?" Like I was never big on that, but I think he would have been the guy that I would have gone to. He would have been brilliant because he's so honest. He was such an honest character. And I struck up a friendship with him because he spent a lot of time around Aussie, being that his wife's Australian. He'd been in Australia, played in Asia. Um, I'd, he'd pretty much say, hey, come on, let's go play a practice round. And, and uh, he was always like that. I remember teeing off in, in, in San Diego at Torrey Pines in pea soup fog. Like, you know, that's what he was like. And I remember once scraping my spikes. Remember them spikes? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had all this debris on the bottom of my shoe and I scraped it off onto the green. And, my, and he looks at me and goes, you, what are you doing, rookie? What are you doing? And I remember looking down and going, you're an idiot, Apple, but you don't clean your spikes on the green. Like, that's how honest he was. He made a mean margarita, invited me around many times for margaritas, and I don't even, barely even drunk any booze then. He was great. And unfortunately, we had uh, two championship uh over in Houston, and uh, we were playing very quiet, no one out there, and uh, one of my caddies, Joe Damiano, my caddy, long-time caddy Joe was at the time, his buddy was walking around, Big Eric, and he said, he was started telling us, I think there's an issue, I think there's a problem, I think, you know, you know the story. And we're like, no, no, really, no. And then when we get in the clubhouse, we all find out, and uh, lo and behold, uh, it was for real, and the weird thing was, I just signed a private plane contract for a whatever a small share of, of a small jet and uh, I flew back to Orlando by myself and just it's not hard to make your mind wander about you know pain situation and it was a really strange week I think we all dressed up I wore some of the pain's actual plus four clothes that week which Tracy gave me and uh, I don't remember much about that week to be honest except me wearing his clothes a little bit and uh, being a tough 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 place and and luckily enough Tracy has done an amazing job with Chelsea and Aaron, who are now big, big girls, big boys, and uh, grown up and into the world. And as a as a father, a parent, I, I couldn't be proud of proud of what she's done under some of the most uh, dueling, uh, tough circumstances. And and you've had a relationship with with uh, with their kids, Chelsea and Aaron, for for quite some time, as as I understand it. Yeah, well, Chelsea, not so much. Aaron, a little bit on and off. I just played golf uh, with Aaron the other day. Actually, hit the so much further than than me now. I remember playing with him when he was just a kid. Now, you know, he smokes it. Great person. 
great people. Again, as a parent, that's all you're looking for is just get my kids to be good people in society and they'll find their way. And he's just like his dad. There's so much dad, there's so much joker, there's so much fun in him. Sometimes it sucks when someone like that and, you know, we obviously uh, Kobe, you know, it feels like yesterday and it'll feel like 10 years yesterday when he's gone and you think, God, if you, you know, sporting athlete that people connect with um, and it's just not always fair. But unfortunately, this stuff's going on that a lot of people don't hear about that uh, aren't with us anymore and life's short and, uh, you know, I love Tracy. She's a champion and, and my wife, Ashley, plays tennis and she loves tennis and, and uh, I just sort of wonder where the, where the late 90s has gone to now. And uh, But Payne, he would have been an asset for us. He really would have been out on tour. He'd have been an absolute a great leader uh, for the generations before. Hmm. Well, a few more here, and I promise we'll let you go. But uh, you said in this 2007 Golf Digest uh, interview, quote, if I have 10 or 15 more good years of golf, I'd go back and stay, meaning Australia. Fortunately, my American wife, Ashley, fell in love with Australia the first time she saw it. So America is my physical home and Australia is my spiritual home. That was 13 years ago. So we're in that between 10 or 15 more years. Uh, any any thoughts to going back to Australia then? Um, well, Jeff Ogilvy made the move, oh, it might even be two years ago in or January, I think. I mean, I'm not quote me, but you know, Ashley, she's American, Akron, Ohio, or Canton, North Canton, Ohio. That's where she's from. She loves Australia more than me, maybe. I love the US. I mean, I, I've got, here I am talking to you on a podcast. Do you think that's going to happen in Australia? Do you think there's a Champions Tour in Australia? Is there any, you know, I like to get out of bed and do stuff. And the problem is I, I don't think I can sit on a beach and sip cocktails or, or just tinker around and plant my daffodils in the backyard. So to answer your question, no, I think I'm here. I think maybe, maybe, maybe there's a chance once my kids grow up. And I had kids when I was sort of in my mid-20s and, and they'd be up and gone, left the nest. I think there's a chance, but... You know, my youngest is only nine, ten. You know, so you, oh, he's the eight. I can't even remember now. There's just too many kids. Is you know, I'm going to be with. They're going to be here for a good twenty odd years. And, and, and I, I love the US. I love Australia. I don't like their flies. I can tell you. I, I, I'm giving you a warning. If you go into Australia in summer, those sons of bitches will drive you crazy. And uh, I just, I love it here. And there's so much opportunities here. The people are so into their game and golf. Um, but I think my wife could uh, up and leave there in a heartbeat. And her sister lives there too, which is even more of a little for her. <laughs> This is a question we love to ask uh, basically players of, of your generation. So we had this thing we call uh, the Tiger Tax, which basically one of our guys, he did a study that you know estimated how much money that Tiger put in the, in the wallets of other players. And we love to ask players this number, which is, if you were if you if you were to get taxed, if you were to pay a tiger tax uh, for for what he has kind of added into the game, what would you estimate of your earnings that would be? What percentage? Oh, how much of a difference he made? Yeah. Oh, look, the two will tell you approximately in the mid nineties onwards that they were growing exponentially. They were growing. You go talk to the TV guys. I'm sure they said, "Nah, eh, small kick, whatever." But Tiger changed the dynamics. The ratings, yes. Uh, how much? Um, thing I was in the thick of it, oh, I'd say three quarters. Wow. Half to three quarters of my earnings, I think, were Tiger-related. But, I mean, the growth the growth from the 80s to the 2000s, so 20-year chunks, has been a massive. And the last 
10 years is ridiculous now. So, yeah, I think substantial. I think substantial. I, I was aware of that probably within the first 10 years of my career going, holy cow. I mean, I think when I won Honda, I won 200 and something thousand. And then I think that then sort of maybe within the last of my victories might have been over a million. So, you know, that's a big change in, um, say, 20 years. That's a big yeah. shift. No, the answer we usually get is around half from most guys. So I haven't yeah. heard it. I haven't heard as much as three quarters. But uh, last one, we'll let you out on this. What are your favorite courses to play in Australia? Uh, I think any of the sandbox courses are probably my favorite. I know that term gets used loosely, but it is a uh, being that I was at the President's Cup. I just walking around Royal Melbourne or the President's Cup layout of Royal Melbourne, and I'm like, holy cow! She, she's like the Bo Derek. I mean, she's still got it. I mean, it's just. She's like, I just wanted to be out there so bad, but I was such a, you know, I play golf like a re, like a total re-re now, and I just can't. And I'm like, God, I'm jealous. I just love to have those skills. The bunkering, the Royal Melbourne, mm. Kingston Heath, those are some of the, the two greatest. Metropolitan. Sydney courses are pretty good. They're not not as uh, maybe quite, I mean, New South Wales is mm. a golf course. No one's, or La Perouse, most people have not heard of. It's like a real rough and ready uh, pebble beach uh, on the ocean, probably too short today but oh my god blows 20 to 40 miles an hour every day um yeah i'd say the sandbelt courses are romantic uh side for me but uh i i love i'm probably missing a good 25 top courses in america then i hear about people oh you played here i go no oh man you've got to play so to be honest i've played a lot of great majors and tournaments and british opens and and and, and those but there's so much in the u.s that i've not played that i'd love to get out but it's been a cool, cool adventure to go to have played a lot of these great courses. I got to tell you. Yeah, uh, well, that's great. Well, we'll have to have you back on here to talk more Australian golf and about fifty other topics. But I'm, I am going to let you go now. But really, really appreciate the time. This was an absolute blast, and we will have you back absolutely any time that you're available. Well, I'm glad we didn't dive down the wormhole. How's that? Let's do that another episode. <laughs> There's 80 different wormholes. I would gladly go down with you. But uh, <laughs> Mr. Appleby, thank you very much for joining. Uh, hopefully, we catch up soon. And thanks, uh, thanks so much for your time. Anytime. Thanks for the chat. Loved it. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most.